0: and I'm Quentin Wilson and together we are the two enthusiasts podcast I had to I had to go off of that I've never never heard you actually have that inflection so it's like (laughs)
1: whoa it's time well Quentin the two enthusiasts podcast is the falling apart at the seams podcast today it's been it's been kind of a weird pre-show I don't know what happened it uh it went sideways on us really quickly we broke a mic stand because of of bad metallurgy yeah and uh we just had like a really maybe we haven't have we not done this in a while it It has been i've been out of town for the past couple weeks and who would have thought
0: there had been an an inclusion in the aluminum casting in this i mean it looked
1: (laughs) um yeah yeah it's been kind of a weird i mean maybe we're still recovering from the the thanksgiving stuffiness yeah so happy thanksgiving to you sir yeah yeah did you did you partake in the turkey or did you have some sort of wild game that your your family prime rib like a caribou, or what do you have, like gazelles or antelope? Right? Yeah, antelope,
0: blackbuck. Apparently, blackbuck are good eating, but um, in India, they have a way of
1: preparing them, but my parents don't prepare them. That's the wrong. They don't have the... It it's, does it's, seem like it would Texas be... Texas is more like barbecue, where I feel like India would be more like spice. Like It would be curried. It would be curried, you. for sure. Uh, before we do start actually talking about motorbikes, Quentin, we should remind our listeners that we are going to do a live show in San Francisco December thirteenth. Going to the D. Going to the D store in San Francisco. It's uh what is it? 131 South Van S. We'll be there from six thirty to eight-ish. Figure to do like an hour show, thirty minutes QA, Q and J. Yeah. Um, so we want them hopefully all of our Bay Area listeners, all of our I think someone even said they were coming down from Sacramento. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. So yeah, if you're in town, if you're in the San Francisco area within driving or riding distance. Come on down and meet Q and I. You will be disappointed. Q and I or Q and J. Um, crime. Let's talk about some motorcycles, sir. So, Quentin, I just got back from New York, and was uh, a guest of Pirelli's for the Pirelli Calendar unveiling.
0: Yeah, and I and I, I have to say, when, even after having seen the pictures from this, I kind of like wonder how much of this is motorcycle content, right?
1: I should show you the, I should have shown you the calendar before the show. I'll show it to you. Oh, you did,
0: you got it here. Yeah, I have he, one. <laughs> you, you called me up at some point. He was like, um, can you pick me up from the airport? I'm like, no, I'm not going to be around. He was like, I'm trying to figure out a way to get this thing oh. home on a, cause you had written to the.
1: Yeah, this was, this, this is the real story. So the Pirelli calendar in a nutshell. I went and hung out with all the fashion industry people. Puff Daddy is a joke of a human being. And I had he, good food. He was there. Yeah, he was one of the people in the calendar. Um, Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, along with RuPaul, Naomi Campbell, and some other people yeah, you might Naomi recognize. Yeah, Naomi Campbell. To be fair, Naomi Campbell has been in it four times. Yeah. in four different decades. Wow. Full respect to a person that can do that. That can
0: still holds their own, good yeah. looking, good. Yeah. Huh. Okay.
1: Then the Pirelli calendar thing was just that it, was it, anecdotal to tell was, that story. It was interesting. I, I got to talk to some Pirelli Moto people, so it was good for that. Um, some some interesting things to come, I think, that I can reveal at a later time. But it was mostly just interesting to see what the fashion industry is like and that whole world. What a
0: strange juxtaposition.
1: Oh, man. And this is something that
0: Pirelli's been doing for decades. So since the 60s, I think, or 70s. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: And it was a titty
0: calendar, straight up. I I don't mean to be rude, but at that, and for most people knew, it was known for being TNA. It was definitely on the side
1: of TNA. It's a very interesting thing, and and it's – and I was trying to explain it to some people that weren't familiar with, like it's an institution in its own right. It's at least been going on for 40 years. I want to say 50 or 60. Yeah. I'd have to double check the history on it because um, I think there was some time periods where they weren't doing calendars. So I think it's 50 years of production over like, like, a, like a 60 year, 65 year time period. Sure. Uh, it started out with the British subsidiary for Pirelli and it was like a gift that they would give ah. their their dealers and their VIPs And then it kind of like became like its own thing. And it, it evolved into basically the top supermodels of the day with the top fashion photographers at like the most picturesque locations. And it was very exclusive. Like you couldn't buy this calendar. It was a gift only. It was top level distributors and dealers, VIPs, celebrities, you know, they very much made this its own kind of thing. And, a few years ago, it morphed from being a classic naked woman, pin-up calendar uh, type of photo shoot. And it was always very artsy. I would say it's I was very tasteful. I say it was classic in that it was super
0: highbrow. Like high the brow pictures sure. were not Hustler magazine. We're talking high-level, uh, very well-done pho- pho- photographs. Nudes, not porn.
1: Yes. Yeah, sure. Would be the best way to
0: describe it. Yep.
1: But I think they got kind of aware of – that's not really an acceptable thing in modern day society now maybe that's not true and like the automobile and motorcycle space we're still kind of i think 10 15 years behind the times but uh i want to say 2015 the calendar changed and became more just straight artsy so like we'll show you the calendar afterwards and you're like this this is just it's just fashion it's just yeah. it's just art and like this year's theme was Alice in Wonderland, but um interesting times. So it was I had a good time, but it was it was definitely a fish out of water event for me. Sure. Good experience. Yeah, absolutely. I look good. I'm not going to like when I look good. All right. I, I knew it. I'll have to believe you because Na- Naomi knew no it. Pictures. I knew it. And I think that's why I ended up by myself at the table. They're just like, wow, <laughs> I that can't even touch next that. next level. That was the next <laughs> level. I I mean RuPaul gave me a wink. No. Oh, oh, well. Uh you want to talk some some motorbikey newsy stuff? Yeah, what do you want to sure. talk about? It's like a choose your own adventure. You want to talk about the mag group going through bankruptcy? Yeah, totally want
0: to talk about it because that's a very interesting thing. So get that this is funny. I'm in Texas and I'm traveling with somebody who worked for um, Parts Unlimited for 30 years, 28 years. So we're going through Texas and another friend of mine texts me saying, hey, and this is one of our both and spies. He's like, did you hear mag groups? I'm like, uh, they're they're uh, declaring bankruptcy. Like whoa, right? In my brain, I'm like like going a million miles a minute, trying to c- kind of think about well, what does that mean? And then Tucker, Rocky, and all right. I was I was thinking about all the things that was going, on and I'm like, no, I did not hear about that. Thank you. I texted you, and I. I told my buddy, I'm like, watch, this is going to be really good because I, I, wasn't, I wasn't convinced that you were going to scoop it, but I had a feeling that you were going to, whatever you did was going to be the most well-written or it was going to cover all the bases. So sure enough, the next day it was like everybody was floating yours because frankly, I think you were the only one that really said much about it and you had the, like you laid it right the fuck out.
1: It's definitely more in my wheelhouse uh, in terms of stories go I and mean, in terms of what, plays to the strengths of asphalt and rubber but it too like yeah i think i think it was the first one to publish something like that uh i remember talking to a colleague of mine about it yeah sure i think we were the first one but when,
0: when you did it it was very very thorough right so i wanted to get your take on it it was one of those things where i'm traveling i didn't have time to actually talk to you other than text you that so i was like i did want to dig in because
1: holy crap what a big deal so what's your take I think I called it the least sexy, most important story of the year or something to that effect. Sure. Because this is a huge, huge deal in the motorcycle industry. And I think for the average day motorcyclist, they're completely oblivious to to what's going on and probably don't even know what the motorcycle aftermarket group, MAG, often called the MAG group, which is redundant, but that's a whole other thing. (laughs) Um. It's my VIN number. It's like the it's, VIN number yeah. that's on my bike. Well, I went to the ATM machine and got some cash. So, I mean, I do it all the time. I'm not gonna, I'm yeah, not no. gonna say it's boo about funny. anyone doing it, but like I catch myself sure. doing it all the time. Sure. And but this is an organization that touches a lot of things, and and it's like a it's a shell of organizations. Like that's the other thing you have to understand. Like this is organizations with within organizations within organizations. It's an onion. It is not well. It's like a one of those Russian nesting dolls, but they're like Siamese twins. Oh. You know, so you got like dolls attached to dolls and they're inside other dolls <clears throat> oh, yeah, and there's dolls sure. around them. And then they like called up some of their other doll friends and they came over and it's like It's like a teratoma
0: a on a on one of those things. Do you know what a teratoma? Is? I don't have no idea what that <laughs> is. Want- you're gonna, everybody's going to have to look that up, and you're going to oh be grossed out.
1: Teratoma. How do you spell that? Do you don't want to do Don't do it. Teratoma. I mean, I've seen some stuff in my time, Quentin. What the hell is this? I don't know if this is good radio. Oh, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> is this one like tumors have like teeth in them? Yes, exactly. Uh, oh, my God. Yeah, definitely... <laughs> Oh my God! Definitely do not click Google Images.
0: <laughs> I know, that's what I was
1: definitely like. <laughs> do not do that. Well, Quinn, I was going to see if you want to get dinner after the show, but now I'm thinking no. well, uh, you can just go after yourself, sir. <laughs> well, the reason
0: I say that jokingly is because it's it is like completely mixed up. There's a lot
1: of these well, companies that are mixed up. There's right? a method to the madness, and it makes sense, especially when you start uh, thinking about how these companies came together as no, a group. No
0: doubt, but is that method? shitty because they there are three hundred billion dollars in debt is that right or was it eight hundred
1: billion what no, what no 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 300 million. 300 million. Oh, sorry three hundred million I mean is a lot no no, no no sure that's a lot no, no. <laughs> that's like that's like the industry um but 300 million is no joke so they're they're about actually 400 million in debt this bankruptcy uh, process is is it's a little complicated. I don't know how like nitty gritty we want to get into it, but don't need to. Be but fully. basically, what happened was the the creditors to to Mag, which truthfully is, I'm saying Mag Mag is not the legal entity no, that sure. that owed this debt, but it is part of it um, because of this shell company. So there's like the overarching shell company is called Velocity Velocity Holding Company, and then there's like another company below that, and then it splits into Mag and ed tucker distribution ed tucker distribution is basically tucker rocky but there's yeah. two components to that tucker rocky georgia and then there's tucker rocky and then there's mag and then within mag you actually have to go through a couple levels of, of shell companies before you get to some things like the motorcycle superstore jmp cycles uh performance machine kiriakin uh, renthal uh, Vance and Hines performance, but it's not Renthal like the Sprocket Company that's based out of. It's Renthal America, All right? Renthal UK is a part of the Mag Group, but is not a yep. part of this bankruptcy action. Yep. So, so what happened was basically uh Mag was like, "Hey, we need to we need to borrow four hundred million dollars." Because we're about to go down. No, that's just part of they. They they did they leveraged their company, so they're basically saying. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head what their revenues were. So um, they were making money. It was going, but they're starting to see the holes where they're like,
0: if we don't take care of this, the debt's going to just continue to get bigger and bigger. We're not going to be able
1: to take care of it, and we need to restructure anyway. Right. Right. I, I mean, it's not a bad thing that they erected on their own debt. I mean, they they do a a bit of business. Sure. So, I wouldn't say like the debt was preposterous into the amount of business they do, but the big thing was they took on this debt with the idea that the market was going to continue to grow. Yeah. And it did not. So, 440 million was roughly the total. And they're like, hey, this is stupid. The amount of money that we're paying in interest is practically how much we're making. You know, like, we're, were I think at the end of it, they're only making like 10 million or 20 million. A year net
0: so not enough for a big company like that to do anything with right right
1: so they're just sitting there like this is stupid and eventually like this is going to catch up to us like we just have to clear this debt the problem was um when i truthfully i think it was the creditors that forced the bankruptcy action so what's happening is it's called a debt for equity swap yeah so basically the creditors are coming in and saying hey we're gonna force you to pay us 300 million dollars you can't do that, so we'll take it in stock in the company. Sure. And that effectively makes them the new owners of MAG. Yep. And then on top of that, through the bankruptcy proceeding, they um, came up with, I believe, $135 million? It's called debtor-in-possession financing. This is basically a financing agreement to help get the company from the start of the bankruptcy proceedings to the end of it and to ensure that their normal operations continue. Yeah. Which is really, really important. This is what's going to make sure that all the Mad group employees continue to get paid. Everybody keeps doing the thing that they're doing. dealers keep getting their stuff. Yep. All the customers and all that. So hopefully this will be, from a consumer point of view... Seamless. Very seamless. And hopefully from a B2B point of view for dealers and distributors and stuff, also very seamless because such a large amount of, of, we call it dip... Um, Dip? Dip financing. Because so much dip financing is being put on the table. So so that's the upside. The the downside is, well, I don't know what the downside is, unless you're you're the current management team at at MAG, you're probably gonna be out of a job. But these creditors are gonna come in. These are the kind of institutions that don't typically hold on to a business. So they're probably gonna look to write the ship, get business operations going again, clear the debt off the books, or at least a substantial amount of it. Because if I'm doing the math right, they're still going to have about $140 million or so uh, on the books. And then I don't know how they're hand- handling this dip financing. So that might be on the books as well. But then that puts MAG in a much better position or a much more better position to then be acquired by someone else. Maybe that's a parts unlimited. Or decide to sell off certain Maybe that's a certain private equity firm. Maybe they would be like, all Maybe right, Maybe it gets hey, broken up.
0: Yeah, we break up a little bit of it. Say, all right, we're, you know, Atkins, great, but... Let somebody else buy that, or whatever that thing might be. But it's not a harbinger of the industry's going down the tubes, because that was my initial thought: was, oh my God, this huge entity that does a lot is experiencing the well the downturn or, or the flat that we're experiencing, and is it's there? It was untenable. It's almost like the big box dealership that needed to sell you know, the 80 units per day to to keep, to keep up, it yeah. right? And that couldn't handle it
1: post-recession. There is an element of that. And I mean, I think the volume of money involved and the number of brands involved is what makes it noteworthy. I don't think at the end of the day, let's say a year from now, right? I don't think you and I are going to be talking about this a year from now in any sort of meaningful way. I think it's going to go through this process they're going to come out the other side. It's a yep. chapter 11, which means it's going to be an, uh, an ongoing concern. As opposed to a chapter
0: 13? Seven.
1: Seven. So chapter seven, you shut it all down, you're done. Chapter 11 means you're going to restructure the debt and, and try and continue the company business. Um, the the reason so many kind of brands are getting tagged, and this is probably what I should have mentioned earlier, and the reason it got to $300 million is all the sub-brands were joint and separately – liable to the debt so mag comes in and says hey banks i need 440 million dollars to do x y and z but i'm 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 just mag holding group and the banks are like okay well we need you know vance and hines to sign on to this debt we need performance machines to be signed on to this debt we need yeah you know sure. this this you know these brands and motorcycle superstore and jmp cycle so basically all the brands are kind of put up and said saying like hey we will be liable for this debt together and by ourselves which is why all these brands, these sub-brands or these sub-companies have to go through the bankruptcy process as well because you have to get rid of the debt at the top level as well as I mean, we call it the parent level as well as the child level. So that's kind of like that makes it sound like a lot worse than it is, but that's just kind of how bankruptcy works, the financing works when you look at how the loan agreements are. Or sure. It'd be like like you and I co-signing for a car sure, and, and we default. Yep well, you're gonna to have to declare bankruptcy and I'm gonna to have to declare yeah. bankruptcy to clear that that debt uh, if you just do it by yourself either that, or then I'm still on the hook for the car yeah. and I'm the one still paying for it yeah, or whatever what was that way either
0: that or somebody has to come up with it if you happen to be able to then right yeah right so they're, if you they're do
1: like co, the, I would say the, the 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 child brands the child companies are like co-signers on the loan together for the for the sure. parent company
0: okay
1: and they're also the collateral they're the 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 well, they literally are the collateral because now they're being taken. They're now being taken possession of, but they're also it's their revenue streams that are being used to dictate. Oh, you, collectively as these eleven companies or so, you bring in half a billion dollars a year, so we will loan you four hundred and forty million dollars because that makes sense in terms of sure um, profits to to debt. So it's an interesting story. It's very complex. Um, even I had a really hard time with it. I had to call a couple finance friends, and even then I'm not entirely sure I got the story right. But, <laughs> I mean, this is, this is tough stuff. Sure. Um,
0: Close enough for what we need to understand. Because, again, I think most people in the beginning would look at it as a shocking, uh-oh, what's going on? And then to be able to see it break down as, oh, it's not that bad. I mean, it's
1: bad, but it's not that bad. It's effectively a leveraged buyout. And that's an interesting thing, and you don't really see that in the motorcycle industry a lot. So,
0: because not often do you see this big of a thing. It'd be like a leverage buyout of Yamaha, right?
1: right? Well, and that's the thing. So it's actually funny to see. Just last night, before we record the show, Yamaha. This is gonna get really confusing, so I apologize in advance. Oh no, Yamaha Corporation is selling (laughs) off its position in Yamaha Motor Company. Oh God, I was I used the, the name Yamaha. I just said that
0: completely yeah i was just shitting it out you and i are just right here right that's here, so buddy. weird yeah okay so is this something that anybody knows about did this guy yeah, I posted
1: this uh, this is why i was up really late last night okay i'm sorry I didn't um, all right and and that's that one i have less of an opinion on because it's it can be a really good thing and it can be a really bad thing and you can't really know unless you know what's going on internally but basically what it is is you have to understand that yamaha is just kind of like weird man how do you describe yamaha well it's uh, Japanese
0: and don't Japanese have a different level of company aren't there the way they structure whatever they call corporations
1: so, yeah so Yamaha Motor and Yam- so Yamaha Corporation and, and Yamaha Motor Company are two separate entities because you on, gotta make
0: different pianos
1: and motorcycles it can't be the same thing right right but they are they have like a partnership agreement which is a very Japanese thing. Uh we don't really have that in the US not in this in this way where they have like a, a partnership agreement would be the wrong thing to call it. Let's call it a cooperation agreement. And they have like a a, joint. a difference
0: between a co- a partnership well, and a Well, co- don't you have to cooperate if you're a partner? Well, no
1: cuz <laughs> we have we have partnerships. We we create partnerships in the US and it means like a very specific thing and this is not that. Okay. This so is the- like saying like it's like it's like you and I like I'm Jensen Corporation, you're Quentin Corporation. Yeah. We are two separate corporations that do things, but we're buddies. And we talk and like, hey, buddy, hey, let's I'm gonna put your face on my logo. Our logo for both our companies is gonna be both our faces. But we are two different companies. So actually the Yamaha Corporation logo and the Yamaha Motor Company logo yeah. are actually different. Hmm. Which we're, one is the tuning fork? they're both tuning forks but it's where the tuning fork is in the ah. ring will tell you which company it is huh well, yeah learn that the hard way um but that's that's the kind of thing where it's like why did you post one one time i think one story a long smack? time ago and someone was like that's the piano one nah. <laughs> and it was because they had done the same thing like i think i think they were a race team you know someone from a race team and they put it on the side of the truck on and accident. someone from japan saw it and was like that's the wrong logo you need to change that I bet. And they're like, but it's the three tuning forks. It's like, yeah, but the tip of the tuning fork touches the edge of yeah. the circle. Yeah. And the one you want doesn't. Huh. And you're like,
0: oh, cool. We used well, to little factoid. people when we were travel through airports. I probably said this on the podcast before. I apologize. We'd be in an airport. Somebody's like, what are you guys uh, on a uh, motorcycle race team? No, we're piano tuners. All right? right. We'd be just, the, <laughs> all of us group we're grouped the together. A team piano all tuners. The,
1: um, No, we, we're tuning pianos for the opera. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of pianos, big piano year. This is a big market for pianos. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was interesting to see. So, the the thing of note there is Yamaha Corporation is selling enough of its interest in Yamaha Motor Company that it is no longer considered a major shareholder. It goes mm. below this ten percent threshold. Wow! Which, in like the practical like sense of the world. Makes no difference whatsoever. They, I think, they have a 9.93 percent voting right because they ended up getting rid of like 2.6 percent of their of their voting rights. Huh. Eight million shares of stock. Why? Oh, this would be the question. But the fact that they're now no longer a, a major shareholder in Japan world is is a pretty big thing. That's where that 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 um, cooperation agreement and that sure. like we are related kind of companies, even though we're separate. That means something. So that for me was the, probably the bigger part of the story than the actual selling of the stock, the fact that they took it to that threshold. And what it does is it it creates a profit of about 26 billion yen for Yamaha Corporation, which they are then turning around to use to buy back some of their stock. So that's the part that, that's where this kind of makes oh, sense. And God. and the, the crux yeah. of it seems to be them wanting to buy back shares of their stock and there's reasons a corporation would want to do that yeah and some of them are good and some of them are bad so like i don't want to really like read the tea leaves on it because i don't i don't know sure without knowing more internally of what's going on in in the grand piano company
0: yeah because that's what it is effectively it's the music side right it's It's everything
1: that's not basically motors motors uh outboard engines jet skis Well, I guess they don't call them jet skis, personal watercraft, but motorcycles, three-wheel. And all the R&D they do Neekins. for cars.
0: They do a lot of
1: stuff for Toyota.
0: They always have. Right. Uh, right. For decades. Many, many times you'd find And that's that,
1: another one of those cooperate. That's a different type of cooperation, sure. but that's one of those like like, they're more like family ties than they are like business organizations, which is kind of... Um, one of the main differences, I would say, between the, like the business atmosphere of the U.S. and Japan, or the let's say the Western world versus the Eastern world,
0: as opposed to like when Buell went from—I remember it was a big deal when Buell went from however much ownership to forty-nine percent. Harley took over that one percent to make it. Not not the whole of it. Not didn't buy it all the way at one well, point. Well,
1: that's the, that's a little bit different because that's the controlling interest. Once you tip over fifty, now you're yep. in control of the company. You yep. you had the board seats. You put the people in power. Sure, that's that's the nut. Uh, this is a little different from that, but not that far off. It's it's just a very like looking at the the symbolism of it. Yeah, and and understanding how important that is kind of culturally in that business environment, I find it very interesting. Uh, I don't know what that means long term. Both companies, when you look at their stock prices, have been going up fairly well over the last five years. They both seem like they're pretty healthy financially. So it's not like one so of the really, others in a bad way? But yeah, and that's where I come back. Is it that Yamaha Corporation needed to buy back some of its stock? Or is it that Yamaha Corporation lost faith in Yamaha Motor and reduced its they're interest like, in them?
0: Oh, you're going to create that thing with three wheels that leans with the four fork tubes? Oh. I think we're going to have to get out of this shit. There's not enough condo for us here.
1: (laughs) I'm just going to glance past that. I'm just going to glance past it. But it was interesting (laughs) to see – where's the quote? This is is like really bad Japanese to English, by the way. But it says, however, on the other hand, as a result of consideration from various points of view, including capital efficiency – The company has decided to reduce its holdings of yamaha motor shares to a level where the company will not be included among the major shareholders the fact that they had to come out in their own kind of like thing and say that that to me was like that's interesting the fact that like you're like whoa from a financial consideration we don't think it's wise to be as heavily invested in this motorcycle power sports company as we originally were yeah Which is interesting. I don't know. Yeah. Read into it how you will. Sure. It's interesting times. And for those two stories to kind of break within like a couple of weeks of each other was kind of a big deal. Uh, speaking of newsy stories, this is probably a little bit more up your Quentin. Ben Spee's returning to racing. Yeah. We talked about this, I think, a couple of shows ago. Sure. When there were still rumors percolating about... And maybe coming back to Moto America, yeah. maybe riding a Ducati. Sure, I he, think was he was
0: testing on a Kawasaki somewhere yeah. in Texas. It was obvious that he was. He was posting up a picture of his helmet on Instagram. It created a fervor. There was all that. And, and then, then he went to EICMA, and I remember seeing pictures of him. First, you, again, if you follow somebody's Instagram, it's amazing. Little, you get to see a little window. So there he is at EICMA, and he's signing stuff at the booth. Maybe HJC, I think is what it was. Sounds he, right. Yeah. Right? That's his helmet thing. And I was wondering, I was like, ooh, is is, is he over there trying to get some cash, trying to get some, some support? Is he going to Ducati Factory? Like, what What was the deal? And then a week later, it's like, I'm racing the enduro series. It was like, whoa. And you're like, the what? <laughs> but we knew, I mean, again, if you followed him, he's been riding dirt bikes a lot. And, it, you know, half your brain's like, well, I thought you were hurt and shoulder injuries are suck. And what would allow you to race enduro that wouldn't allow you to ride a superbike? I would love to understand that. I, you know, legitimately, like I understand how complex the shoulder. We were just talking about shoulder impingement right before this show. I got a little shoulder impingement. We we know how hardcore it is for that injury, specifically for motorcycle road racers. There's whatever movement impinges them when they get a shoulder injury is a big deal. But I mean, isn't there a big risk if you're out riding an enduro? I my brain thinks so, but. Maybe not. Maybe it's a perfectly normal, perfectly healthy thing to do.
1: The way I read this and and knowing kind of what was going on. So Ben was definitely talking to Ducati. um, Yeah. And Ducati Corsa and Italy and I think a little bit in the U.S. That was
0: the last factory he rode for,
1: right? Right. right, On the Pramac. On the Pramac Ducati. So good ties there. Good relations still. And I think what they were trying to do was get him on kind of one of the Chaz Davies hand me down yeah. Panagolis and have him race him in Middle America. And that was very real. I think the the thing that killed it was the price tag that was gonna come along with it. Sure. In terms of putting the team together, yep. getting the bike, doing all the rounds, getting sponsors. They were like,
0: That's gonna be two million dollars at the minimum
1: to be at the pointy end of it, which is where Ben Spee's in all honesty should be. And the, where
0: they would want to be, if they're going to put effort into that, they would need that. They would want to know that they're going to be able to do that at that level, not just provide some sort of super stock bike.
1: Right. Right. And so whatever, for whatever reason, and I think it was mostly money that never materialized. And so I think that's what prompted Ben to be like, well, I can go race enduro and whatever money like my sponsors will throw in that will actually make that work and it's not like he's racing like top level professional he's in the pro 2 class he's not even in the pro 1 so he's in like this like middle tier class for the ama uh enduro championship
0: i well i wouldn't expect him to be in the it's not like he's gonna it it would be the equivalent of racing supercross without ever having raced supercross it's so gnarly so to do enduro at that level, even at the one you're talking about, don't take away from that.
1: That's I'm nasty. not I'm not taking away from it. I can't go do it. Um, I'm not trying to take away from it. It just it just seems really weird. Like we went from like talking about like a Moto America revival to like semi pro Enduro racing. Well, maybe it's just him saying, you know, in order for me to do this, if
0: I go and try and do it half assed on a team on the road racing side, it's just gonna be egg on my face. Whereas if I just keep myself out doing something that I implausibly shouldn't do, or like couldn't do, or everybody would be like, "How the what?" But if he ends up doing badly, it's it's like, Meh, fair enough, he tried. But if he ends up doing well, holy shit, it'll keep his it'll keep him up there,
1: right? I totally get it from like a Ben Spee's perspective, like absolutely what you just said, like, hey, I want to go, I want to go do some racing. I want to get too serious about it. I'm gonna go do pro two. We'll go do the thing. Sure. Like why not? It just from like the the fan point of view, like in me, like oh, I'd be I'm so I was so excited to like. See him line up on the grid with a Panigale yeah. in the Moto America paddock. Like put it, like some some life into that paddock. Put sure. some put yep. some you know they need energy Bad. into it. Get a big name in there. Sure. You know not to disparage the other riders that are in Moto America right no, now. No, but can you imagine talent, him throwing a, would, on a lightning Tony rod? Elias?
0: Oh my god! It would be they would be they would be a very interesting race to watch. Right? Yeah, yeah. for sure. It would
1: get me. As a publisher, excited about covering Moto America, like oh Ben Speeds, it's the same thing we were talking about Superbike with Nikki. Nikki's in the series now. Okay, now as a publisher, I'm excited to cover this, especially as an American publication. So that's my only disappointment. Like from from Ben's perspective, like I totally get. Like, hey man, you want to go race, race whatever you want. You want to race go karts you want to race sailboats, go do it, whatever makes you happy. And like you said, if he does do well, it's going to put him even more on the radar. And I think that maybe potentially could set him up for sure. for a 2019 season when there's a 1000 cc v4 race bike in and in or the garage. he
0: could just put him in the position where honda or kawasaki says you know we want to get back into it we need somebody really good not just kind of maybe good but really good that we're not going to have to worry about that'll that'll bring a tuner like tom houseworth in and we'll be able to just click back into place and win superbike well, race i got it i got it for you
1: Johnny Rock Page.
0: Oh, sure. Right. Absolutely.
1: Boom. Done. Figured and it.
0: And then, fixed it. 2020, we have a new president with Johnny Rock. Which Johnny, is
1: President Johnny Rock Page, lining up on the grid. I
0: I would really wish that would have happened because I would be a. I would that'd love be terrifying.
1: No, no, that'd be yeah. terrifying. That'd be Not horrible. Not any more terrifying no, what's going on. I think it'd be worse. I think I think you could actually do worse. And then that's how you would do worse. <laughs> I disagree. No, because we, we wouldn't even be a country anywhere. It would be a disaster. <laughs> oh, my God. Don't even get me started. Get me dude
0: free cadillacs for all paris hiltons
1: <laughs> oh my gosh
0: oh my god uh, lo- look up johnny rock page if you don't know who no John- don't 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 feed the beast <laughs> don't feed that that animal oh i like johnny i don't think yeah i don't
1: i don't think you're- he's the rumple stiltskin of the <laughs> motorcycle industry Aww jensen he is though like he really is like it's this. it's like he who should not be named like he's the voldemort i don't know what that means that's that's that's, we'll watch the movies we'll figure it out all right i don't like game of thrones (laughs) um so yeah we'll we'll see you know i'll be curious to see how ben goes you know i wish him the best i hope it truthfully i really hope this is like a a way that he can show like hey I'm healthy yeah, I'm ready to race I agree put some faith in me let's get some money yep. let's go do some I think stuff.
0: that's what I, I think it's sound logic I th- I can understand whereas if he would have tried to put together even a base super stock platform they put it's super risky and and then he would be painted with a brush of oh he's a has been right? Right, right if if it didn't go exceedingly well right off the bat and I think that the series is deep enough to where even if you got on a super stock bike, you would have trouble. Ben Spees would not immediately go out and win every round nope. unless he was on a really good bike and he would be putting himself in harm's way racing against a lot of hot shoes that are out there right now.
1: There is there is some really good talent in Moto America that gets overlooked. Yep. Um, and the amount of money that Suzuki is putting into it, I think has now eclipsed what Yamaha was putting into it.
0: That's a big deal.
1: Which is a big deal, and it's not like Yamaha is putzing around no. in moto america for sure Honda's starting to get on the boil i would still say they're definitely a step no. or two back yeah for sure but like if you want to go compete against the yamahas and the suzukis and the rider lineups that they bring with them you're Better gonna bring, have to bring your a game it's not just a pushover no so I, I agree with you quentin this might be one of the few times i agree with you
0: no nice i like it
1: it makes me feel good i know i very really remember the cockles in my heart well oh, i don't know what that means <laughs> I'm not googling that one after the. (laughs) No,
0: it warms the teratoma in my pancreas or whatever. whatever.
1: So gross. (laughs) So gross. Um, There was something I was going to disagree with you about, and I've already forgotten it. And I spent the better part of the pre-show trying to to remember it. So we'll just move along that and have our moment and call that good. Like here it is. This was the day. That sucks because I
0: really want to disagree with you.
1: (laughs) I know. I know. (laughs) You were talking before the show though about something we had to stop. Because we we're like, oh, oh this we is had good. multiple. This ones. is good. This is good. But fodder. one of them
0: was there was a, a Matt Oxley article about why there aren't any British Grand Prix champions, but there's a shit ton of British Superbike champions.
1: And for those who don't know, Matt Oxley, well-respected British motorcycle racing journalist, journalist, motorcycle journalist in general, wrote the book "Stealing Speed." Highly recommend reading it. It's about how basically Suzuki became a two-stroke powerhouse by stealing Eastern Bloc technology. Two-stroke technology. It's killing me that I can't remember the name of the dude. Good book. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. Matt Oxley's story about uh, yep. British, British championships.
0: So uh, Matt Oxley's known as pretty rad. I think he was a racer for a long time, right? He's legit. He is super legit. So he p- published an article. was basically saying it was kind of a call out to the British people, the British media, and people in England that were just like whining and whinging and moaning. Whinging and whining is the same, I think. I think one's British
1: and one's like American.
0: Sure. And I think whinging is a little extra amount of, right? So a lot of people are like, oh, it's Dorna. It's all Spanish.
1: I would would always say like whining is like when you complain about something. Whinging is when you complain about something so you can be complaining. Yeah. It's like that next level. Like I'm not really complaining about the thing. I just want to complain.
0: I just need to. Vent. I oh, need, the sun I need you is so show. bright. This yeah,
1: sun. It's just it's like a giant hot, burning ball of gas in the sky, and it's so bright. And this water. Have you noticed this water is really wet lately? <laughs> it's just really moist and wet. It's just, I just don't like how wet this water is. Yeah, yeah. whinging.
0: All right. So there's been a lot of that with Dorna doesn't help support any British riders and no British rider could ever be successful in Dorna because it's Dorna and they're Spanish and they hate us and it's hate, hate, hate. And right. And it's just all stupid. And, and Matt's basically saying, Hey, this isn't the case. Let's look at the history of it. And he breaks it down fairly well. Please read the article it's on. I forget what his website is. Probably, Moto. Well, he
1: probably published it on motosport. That's one of exactly those places. Right. He's a, he's a, yep.
0: So that's where it was. Rider. And the, the interesting thing is when one of the comments, somebody asked, well, Interesting to see this as an expat that's living in the US now. What why did America have such a shining moment in the late eighties, early nineties and go into nothing? And my response was that in the in the early eighties, you were dealing with chassis of Grand Prix bikes that had there there was a, a shit ton of power coming out of the the 502 strokes. They were they were very well developed by that time, and the chassis and tires were not So there was a kind of a a tipping point in the mid-80s where you had to have riders that could handle a bike sideways out of control. And the American flat track racing that had started um, in the 60s, 70s had come on song at the exact same time. So first you had Kenny going in the late 70s, Kenny Roberts, um, with a style of flat track but also knee down. Right, he was one of the one one of the originators, one of the main people that that embraced the knee down, but also could handle the thing sideways and wiggling. He could ride the wiggle, so he brought that on, and then it started from there, and it, and it didn't stop for twenty years. Right, so in the mid nineties, though, that was my question: it was like I came up with that, and I'm like, from nineteen ninety five on, I'm not really sure why there wasn't, well, why it stopped from Lawson. Rainey, Schwantz, Spencer, right? Why did it? Why did it stop after those guys? You know, and um, I, 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 I want to know. Like, wh- what do you think is going on now? And then from that point, that was many years ago. We're already looking at what thirty years of like what's what's going on with American road racing. Why aren't there GP champions? The one thing that Matt didn't bring up in this article, and I'd say this is going for current times, is. The size of the riders for sure makes a difference. And I think Grand Prix riders being small is a huge deal. Now, I'm not saying it's everything because you've got riders like Rossi, who isn't, isn't huge, but he's not flyweight like Marquez – and then you got somebody like Loris Baz, who's like gigantic, but can still handle the bikes fairly well. Obviously, not at the at the sharp end of the, uh, yeah. of the realm. So, so I think that's part of it. And I wonder if the diminutive stature of a lot of racers that come out of other parts of Europe might be part of
1: the deal. I don't know if that's really the, what's going on. I mean, for, there there is a bit of that to a certain extent, just because you're looking at power and weight, right? smaller riders are going to weigh less you're going to have a better power to weight ratio huge and it's not yeah. just for acceleration it's also cornering cornering, it's braking, breaking. it's everything but as we've seen with Danny Pedrosa and Alvaro Batista this season that can be a detriment
0: yeah
1: uh, I look at riders like Scott Redding Loris Baz Valentino Rossi and Valentino Rossi is a great example Rossi is like 5'10 yeah so I don't know if it's necessarily like like, like you can be like height that's the reason height and weight that's the reason Obviously, they have to be lighter, but I, I I look at it from a different perspective. I mean, I'm not going to like completely discount that. Sure. I think I think that has to That's be part a, of the pie. It's got to be a, it's a, yep. it's a part of the pie. I just think it's more of a sliver than it is a piece. All right, fair enough. So then, what's your piece? But I would get back to and this was kind of my point before the show. There is kind of like, well, why do we have this expectation that would there would be an American, you know, at the point end or a Brit at the point? And you end, said, why not Lithuanian? An why like, not Lithuanian? Nigerian? I'm like, well, well, and part of that argument that I didn't get to. Was just like, look at the sample size and and look at the process you have to go through to get into Grand Prix. And I would say the bigger thing is it's it comes down to money and it comes down to support and it comes down to teams. Like, why aren't there any Americans in Grand Prix racing? Because we don't have any American-based teams. So we don't have any American-based sponsors in this sport that are saying like, you don't have a Repsol Honda saying like, you need to have a Catalan or you need to have a Spanish rider. You know, you need to have a Marquez or Danny Pedrosa or a Sete now or um, I'm trying to think of all the the Spanish writers that have come through that they kind of insisted upon like, hey, you got to have at least one of these guys on the team because we're a Spanish oil company. We need to, sure. you know, we want to have our thing. So we don't really have that base there. We don't really have that pipeline. And at the end of the day, the grid size is 20, it's 20 spots, you know. Yeah. So it's like, well, you know, there is an element of that. Where yeah, it's like, well, you have to, you're, you're fighting for, you're fighting for a really small, finite number of seats. And that process to get there, you know, really weeds out a lot of people. Like, how many American talents do we have that would be able to one, compete at a Grand Prix level that are Grand Prix caliber riders? And I do think we have them. I do think we have Grand Prix level riders in the Moto America paddock. And I think we have them in the international paddock. But also, you have to understand, like, you need to get them early. And if you're not racing in Europe at a young age, then your your options as a career start diminishing. Understanding that where it's like, well, if you're an American racer and you come up through the ranks of, say, American flat track and you go to AMA Pro Racing and it becomes Moto America, like, you've kind of missed the channel or the feeding into International Grand Prix. Maybe you can make a jump into Superbike, World Superbike, but, like, Grand Prix racing really, like, right now, like, they're pulling people out of the Moto2 CEV class and they then come into like the Moto2 Spanish two. Championship. All right, and then go into into the Moto2 International Championship or they come in through Red Bull Rookies Cup and yep. Moto3 and work their way up. Yep. And even then we're seeing like the path inside the GP paddock is still really complicated. I think you can make a really excellent argument right now on why moto 2 is not preparing riders for moto gp no, and no. we're seeing people kind of you know jack miller was the example of this jumping the moto 2 class going from moto 3 to moto gp and so like i just come back to this like expectation and like and our expectation is that there's gonna be an american in this like it's hard enough to be a spanish kid in moto 2 to get a moto gp ride and that's supposed to be the stepping stone yeah. and now you're gonna take it like one standard deviation of weirdness beyond that, where it's like, oh, I'm in Moto America and we ride completely different bikes that are production based, but aren't as advanced as World Superbike. And we only race at these tracks that are really nothing like the European and tracks. Now, th-
0: this is a huge deal for me. And I want to, I want to bring this up because I think this is a, the crux of it. I'm not saying it's the whole pie, but it's a big part of it is that the, we talked about vertical integration. So the vertical integration of racing in Spain all the way from mini bikes to MotoGP. It, it there's clear ways you can do it. It takes money, it takes effort. When you see this clear path through the CV series, a lot of it is that the tracks are fast flowing MotoGP style. and MotoGP style is fast and flowing and the tracks are better, tracks cleaner built
1: for bikes to make 250 plus horsepower. Safe why? Rel- relatively
0: safe. It's all relative. There's there's, some there's GP
1: tracks that are not safe. Let's just be honest.
0: No doubt. Name a fucking American track that's safe. Not one. There's not one fucking American track that's safe. Not one of them. Every single one is dangerous. More dangerous than than the most dangerous Circuit
1: of the Americas. Yeah. Probably, but truthfully though, probably one of the safest Let's think tracks right now. I mean, we remember we were talking to Kevin Schwantz. They haven't had a bike reach the wall yet. Yeah. And I'm trying to think of a
0: spot on that track that's bad.
1: I mean, and there's it, there's parts, like if yeah, you lost both brakes.
0: You're right. You know, but, you're going to be in still, a world of hurt.
1: I mean, you would have to really. It's
0: just as good as any one of those GP tracks. Good point. All right. So there's one. Other than that, I'm trying to think of any track. Miller Motorsports Park has a horrible, horrible
1: area coming Ch- onto Ch- the front Ch-cola, straight. Because where, where are you going to go? Right there. Where go. are you going to go? That's you got true. like 800 miles of desert before you hit me. You and might that's, hit a cactus. That's very good. you're point. more likely to hit like an endangered tortoise tortoise or something That'll i was gonna say like to like ando. woodchuck or something but that's they don't oh, know chuckwalla so chuckwalla chuck hit, hit the a chuckwalla is the is that
0: lizard thing right isn't that what they call that
1: oh yeah i didn't know that i think so because their logo is a, a lizard is
0: the lizard i think that's called a chuckwalla
1: it's like a chupacabra.
0: chupa chupacabra Walla cabra yeah
1: we should get branding on that
0: okay i'll, <laughs> I'll for sure i gotta get jen because jen dunston is all about chuckwalla i'll be like all right you need to make a leather suit that's, ch- ch- what is. what do we call
1: Chupacabra? it? Chupacabra?
0: Ch- I already lost, I already lost it.
1: Chukachuku. I'll edit it back in. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, we're going to sound drunk, you
0: know? <laughs> All right, so the bottom line is there's not many tracks that are safe, fast-flowing, that aren't point-and-shoot. When I say point-and-shoot, that is squaring off corners, where you you are better off diving deep into the corner and then powering out instead of using corner speed.
1: Which is very much a super bike style right For sure.
0: And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you can't do that, then you're going to get put into Moto2. And Moto2 is a combination, a bizarre combination of you better have your shit together to be able to handle corner speed. And you better be able to put that thing in sideways at the same time. It's a bizarre thing. And you have to be able to use momentum because the motors are not that powerful, but the chassis are amazing. And now they have them, what, now we're five five or six years deep into these things? Whereas in the 250 class, that was mostly, and this is 252 stroke, and that would be last year was 11 or 12, I think. Um, that was corner speed, and oh, it was just a beautiful thing to watch, and learning how to set up a bike in a very specific way. But that didn't necessarily translate to the MotoGP bikes of now. It certainly did help. Of the MotoGP bikes um, of that era, of the 800 era, which was again more uh, corner speed, you know, Jorge Lorenzo friendly as opposed to Nicky Hayden friendly, right? Nicky Hayden gets on a um, a 990 at the time. This is in the the first the first iteration of MotoGP. Uh, thousands were 990s, and I mean Rossi run rough shot over everybody because he could handle the corner speed and he could still. Ride sideways. He could do both. It
1: also helped that he was on the Honda, and the Honda, and the Honda was was
0: an overlord for that class for sure. Um, Yeah. So there's that's that balance of all these things. Some like Colin Edwards, superbike racer through and through, had ridden racing superbikes in some iteration, some form since the early '90s. Right when he was on a Heinz Yamaha, so he had trickled up through to the point of getting a World Superbike Championship on a Honda um, SB2, and then got put into MotoGP, and was always so close, but he never got a race win. But he was always so close and so good that he kept getting rides year after year after year all the way up until the early teens, right? Or I can't remember. What was it, 2010 or 11,
1: 12? No, no, it was later than that.
0: It was. was So early teens, right? So that he would be...
1: That was... That was 2010, 2011 or so, was when he was transitioning out of Tech and then going, he did and a whole thing, whole stint at forward racing.
0: Got it. So, the, the, and, and he was kept on because mainly he was just such a good development rider and tire tester, et cetera. So, between him, Ben Spies comes out. Well, point and shoot galore, AMA road racer, goes and wins the World Superbike Championship first year running away, and then gets in the MotoGP and does pretty well. Not exceptional, but it's tough. But all right, so that was the last person I think on the, from the U.S. that that made it, right? Josh tried to go. Josh Heron tried to go in and, and a Moto2 team, and it wasn't going to be easy, and it wasn't, and he had to come back. And now he's hauling back. He's a hauling ass back here. He's good at racing these bikes. He is, I think, a prime example of somebody that should have gone over earlier and was misguided by. The, the people here in the United States, to not get him on a 252 stroke back when he he could have because he grew up racing 125s. I raced with him one time on a 125 back when he was like 12, 13, 14, something like that. So I've seen this kid go from, I call him a kid, but he's not, from the only race series in the U.S., the U.S. GPRU that raced two-stroke 125s and 250s, got on a 600, it was immediately fast on a six hundred. Had f- had it figured out, and probably should have uh, very quickly have gone to two fifties. If you were going to put him in a, in a situation to get on a MotoGB bike, other than that, like I could see him getting on a World Superbike for sure. I think he had easily has the chops to be able to do that, no doubt. But how difficult is it going to be after having this kind of unfortunate? Back and forth, going into the to the uh, Moto Two Championship and not doing well, et cetera. So, who else? Who else can we say is Roger Lee Hayden going to get? Uh, no, I don't think so. Tony Elias goes from Moto GP, goes from World Superbike. Didn't he race the World Superbike a little bit, or was it all GP? He's now winning the World uh, AMA Superbike or Moto America Championship Superbike Championship. Obviously, good at what he does, can obviously adapt to our tracks, and has gotten it set up. So where are we because we don't have this vertical integration where you know you get a kid from mini bikes all the way up through
1: i think i think you got some valid points there i would bring up i think the real crux of it all is the level of sophistication that motorcycle racing has incorporated and we talk about when we talk about like the good old days and, and we we talk about how men were men and they go out and party the night before and they'd wake up still hungover and grit up on the grid and go win sure. the race, even though the bike was a complete basket case and wasn't set up. Sure. I think those days are gone. Long. And I, and I don't mean that like, in like, you know, like, Oh, like the glory days are gone. But like, I think the level of the competition and the level of sophistication and professionalism have risen so greatly in the past, let's say 30 years that like you, you, you can't just be a talent. You can't just have like some innate ability to ride the bike. You need yeah, to have sure. the training. You need to have the diet. Yeah. You need to have the sponsors. You need to have the team. You need to have the mechanics and the data technician and the tire guy to all get that lined up. And I think actually that Josh herron's a great example of this where a very talented rider and then maybe in another decade, you know, decades past. That would have been enough for him to go over to the world championship yeah. and to make a name and to, to have success. But instead, he was in modern day going into Moto Two, which is like like getting thrown into the wolves. Snake pit, man. Easily the most competitive, most effed up class in racing right now. Because Period. Everyone's on, like, they call it the calyx cup. Everyone's on basically identical bikes, which means a couple clicks on the suspension, a couple little differences here on setup. If you can make your quick shifter work a little bit better, and this is what people accuse Marquez of cheating, because sure. they found a way to make their quick shifter do something that other quick shifters weren't capable of doing. Yep. And that gave him just a little bit more of an edge, and that edge makes a difference. But you got to have the data guy that knows how to do that, you got to have the chassis and suspension guy that knows how to. To get you set up with the way you are, and the difference that that makes when you don't have one of those things is the difference between front of the pack to middle of the pack to back of the pack, and we saw that with Josh. You know, he sure. on his best day he was a middle of a packer. Yep, not because he wasn't as talented of a rider. Because he didn't as have the whole thing. Front. But he didn't have the whole thing around him. He didn't have a team in his corner. There's there's a lot of factors there. Sure. One of them was the level sophistication was so high that you had to bring it with you. And I think that's what GP is. Like, are the best riders necessarily in GP? Or I should say, are the most talented riders necessarily in GP? No. But they are the riders that were able to put as much of the package together around them to bring them up there. Because it is a business now. It is like, hey, well, how much how much money do you bring with sponsorship? How much money can you get me? How much exposure do you have? How many followers do you have on Instagram? How many, how good are you like, how willing are you to go do media events and press events and talk to people and and you know do that ribbon cutting ceremony in in Malaysia when we go there and that's our biggest market? Blah, 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 blah. That's the whole side of it. And the truth is, we don't have that in the US. We're not packaging our writers. You know, Nikki. The only reason Nikki got a a ride in MotoGP is because American Honda was backing him and and was packaging things around him to place him inside that Repsol Honda team and was dealing it with kind of like the blessing of AMA Pro Racing. You know, And and, you and, and he had the chops. He was fast. It wasn't like he
0: wasn't fast. He had to have that, too. Right.
1: The, the, he, I mean, not, that's the thing. Like He already had the talent. We had a lot of guys with talent. But he was one of the few guys with talent that was able to put the package together. And I think Spees was the same thing. Yeah. You know, And that's why You're you right. see him come over. Yamaha Superbike and Yamaha Superbike spent a ton of money on him the year that he was in Superbike. I mean, he was winning races because of talent but he was also winning races because of resources and it's the same with cal crutchlow when he was in supersport they were outspending other people on the grid just full stop and that seems to be the biggest let's let's call that the biggest piece of the
0: pie it's always going to be that because that's where all the other stuff that you just talked about trickle down from is where is the money coming from in the u.s we just don't have that we don't have any outside industry sponsors that
1: i can think of that are a Uh, of note um will you you think of like the companies in the u.s that back motorsports and it's like well i mean it's monster i think is the biggest one sure Uh, is rockstar american i can't recall red bull's not but you look at these kind of brands that are oakley oakley would be a good one but these brands these guys they're not doing that that's the thing we've lost that kind of like corporate backing or the the checkbook from the equation because now like that's the other part of it the personal checkbook isn't good enough no. and we see that with writers like like Jack Miller yep. who have a lot of or, or Carol Abraham who have substantial wealth from their family but it's still not the kind of not even like just wealth but connections yeah and resources beyond money they don't have that to, 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 to cross the divide and the brands that do have that that are American based Aren't investing in American riders. No. They're investing in the sport. They're investing in, in events. They're they're more focused on themselves, which I don't know if you can fault them for it. Sure. But we don't have a repsol, uh, uh, no, key company is that-, that is that is investing in young riders at the age of three and five and bringing them up through the lower ranks, the Spanish national series and, and putting them in the Spanish moto three and Spanish moto two, and then helping them create a pathway into GP. And we don't, we don't have any of that going on. Well, what we did and we did
0: have that and it was called Marlboro. It was called Philip Morris. It was called Smoke. Right.
1: Yeah. Right. I think you're absolutely right. I think you kind of hit the, the nail on the head and that's, that's been the change between the cigarette era and the, energy drink era and i think part of that is just the different corporate philosophies of of those brands so i mean i don't have a good answer i think it's going to take someone i think it's going to take the american series getting stronger so we can start rallying around our champions and and having money around them and then you're still going to have to have people that are more media savvy than they are and like truthfully i look at You know, motorcycle racing in the US, and we're very, I think we're still very much in our roots where it's just like, I was just reading a thing, you know, today, a man in a van with a plan. And you're just like, yeah, isn't that great when you could just go romp around to races and you just pull your bike out of your van and you go race? Weren't those the glory days? You're like, that's not, that's not the level of sophistication at the international level. That's not how they're doing it abroad. And it's just, Yeah, it's quaint to have that kind of romanticism with it. And it wouldn't be nice if we could all be privateers racing our own little private bikes in the back of our van? But, you know, those days have kind of sailed. And I think we as an industry are realizing that, like, we're behind the times. And I would say the motorcycle industry is very much stuck a decade or two behind the times. Truthfully, like, I look at the rest of the paddock, I'm like, you guys are still racing like it's 1980. And it's not. And you have to get with the times. And the industry has to get with the times. And... I was just listening to someone talk about because uh, the uh, International Motorcycle Show was at Long Beach. It, kick, yep. it kicked off uh, last week. And yep. they were saying, like, a bunch of industry types all got in room. And they finally sat around and were like, hey, we should probably stop trying to sell bikes to baby boomers and start focusing on these, like, millennial type people. What? what do we do? I think that would really help our sales. I think Ooh. they're just now starting to realize, like, hey, by the way, aren't baby boomers starting to die off? Like, isn't that, aren't they kind of hitting that? that age point like we should be maybe looking for new customers and that's and i think someone made a great argument of you look at all these twenty thirty thousand forty thousand dollar motorcycles those are motorcycles built for baby boomers those are yeah bikes that are built for people that are in the sunset years of their life that have money, money that have their savings sure. they're they're pretty much set they've made their career they're doing well we're not really making a lot of bikes that are like i saw honda had a bike and i forget the name of it it was for the Nigerian market. It was for the businessman in the Nigerian market. That was their, that was like, they, it was really funny to see that that was their stated demographic they were going after the the, the the suit, the Nigerian suit. How much do you think that bike cost US dollars? I don't know. i probably have to check my emails to find yeah. the prints. It was like 800 bucks, 600, yeah. 800 bucks. Can you imagine? Like, why don't we have a sub $1,000 bike from Honda in the US market? You know, like I think the best we have is the is the Grom, and it's still a few grand. Uh, now, granted, like this bike was it was it bones. was it was yeah, not much you know. It. Sure. But still. But yeah. still, like why don't we why don't we have that? Why don't we realize that not everyone can afford a ten thousand dollar bike, a five thousand dollar bike? We should have price points all over. Nobody the place. Even wants to. At this stage,
0: there's a lot of people that are just kinda like they look at this stuff and that aspiration to to get to that level, I kind of feel the vibe of that. Like it's happening to me. I see a bike that's over $20,000. I have no, I could afford that. I could do it. I could absolutely go and buy that bike. Doesn't mean I could buy it in cash, but I could easily afford the payment. I understand that. Do I want to? No. Are they giving me a compelling reason to? No. Are there bikes out there that I could buy used for literally a quarter of that that will do the same thing? Yeah. Right so why should I? So mm-hmm. they're not giving me a compelling enough reason on the superbike level on the street bike level, right? If I can go buy a mid 2000s Kawasaki ZZR1100 or yamaha fc1 as a standard motorcycle that'll do better than most of the shit that's coming out now then why should i so i i get it unless unless they give me a compelling reason cost wise if it is below ten thousand dollars or something like that you see that's what why do we why are we seeing the success of some of these smaller bikes the yamaha fc7 and fc9s all these 500s and through 350s the, and 250s the new, yeah the new cowies they're doing well yeah. And nobody's like, nobody's saying that, oh, what, what do you know? These are doing well. We need to make more of them. Are they? They are kind of, but what is the industry doing as a whole to foster that love? When I go down the road and I'm seeing more of these smaller bikes, I was in central frickin' Texas for, for two weeks. The most bikes I saw were that c- category. That's central Texas where you have to drive two hours to get anywhere, and that's what people are riding around on most so that was what I, was surprised me. Maybe it's my brain thinking it more. I saw BMWs and I saw small small bikes, generally, right? Whether it would be the, the the Honda 500s, the Kawasaki Ninjas, the Honda 250s, et cetera. So I, there it is. It's great. I want that. We all want that. It's good. That keeps people in the industry. That keeps them alive, frankly. And then it keeps them from having to spend a shit ton of money. So how is it that the rest of the industry isn't seeing that as obvious? I don't know. It, it's a
1: little scary but i i think that comes back to just look who's in look who's in control look who's pulling Old the strings white guys. baby, it's, baby it's, boomers it's yeah. baby boomers so yeah. they they speak to their they speak to what they know and and these are the same demographics that are like well well kids these days they just rather be on their phones and play video games and go outside and they don't want to own cars they don't want to own vehicles and, and those and that and it's like man what a cop-out like have you sat down and talked to your kids lately do you understand like this is why your your kids hate you like truthfully like this is why like your kids are rebelling against you because like you've reduced them to this like this shitty amorphous thing because truthfully you're just bad at marketing it's like kids don't want to own cars no kids can't own cars because they have so much student debt that they're not going to go out and get another payment on top of the student loan that they're just never going to pay back because jobs aren't as bountiful as they once were, and they certainly don't pay as well as they once were. So it's just like, let alone if you understand happen, the
0: whole thing. Sure, and if you happen to also have some sort of medical condition, then you're all, uh, yet more on the back foot for paying off those bills. So if you got a, that combo, seems to be something that's happening quite a lot the the combo of horrible student loans at high interest rates and medical bills that are fucked right, and then you get that both, and then you got you. Uh, it's ripe for people that don't have uh, expendable income. Yeah. Sucks.
1: I understand your market. I don't think I don't think the motorcycle understand, understands its market. Not even by a long shot. So yeah, uh, I don't know how we got there, but we did. It was interesting.
0: So that thing that was in Long Beach, did you hear directly from somebody that was there? Did they did they feel good about what that meeting was of the meeting of the minds that was down there?
1: No, they thought it was terrifying. Um, they were just like almost aghast at the conversation level of like, like literally, Hey, you know, these baby boomer guys are going to start dying. Do you think we should start marketing to younger people? Like, yeah. like, like this is something that, that I know bad. I've been talking on asphalt and rubber for literally a decade, Yeah, literally a decade. And I know I'm not the only one. I'm sure. not the one that started that conversation. I can't claim original thought for that. I've definitely been a part of that conversation though. And you kind of sit there and you're just like, have you guys been paying attention? Like, like you're just now starting to get this and understand too, like it's going to take you three to five years to build these bikes that you're now going to, you know, pivot and and do your whole thing. So like in reality, like we still have another three to five years of, of, of not responding to this trend. Like, how did you not see this coming down the pipe? Like for me, it just reinforces how, how big of a blind spot we have as an industry in terms of not only how conservative and slow we are to change, but also just like, we really are an industry run by old white men, and they view everyone else as old white men, and they don't understand that not everyone is in the same position as them. Not everyone takes uh, away from motorcycling the same things as they do. Like, not everybody, everybody can a view whole, it from the same privileged viewpoint. I don't even think it gets into privilege. I think it's just, it's like literally just perspective. It's just like you see things as if everyone else grew up in the time and in the place that you did and that's really not the case when the largest groups of buying power are are you know the Gen X and the Gen Y you know generations and you don't understand them at all and you reduce them to these kind of like shitty stereotypes Yeah, like I think like that's the thing that kills me it's like not only are you like operating off of a stereotype which in itself is wrong but you've taken like these kind of like base and just frankly shitty perspectives on the younger generation like oh kids these days don't want to play outside like yeah they do don't don't tell me a kid doesn't want to play outside because go to any schoolyard during recess and where are you going to see all the kids they're not inside hanging out on phones they're outside playing going down slides and doing their things like that's an innate thing that is a part of just being a kid it's the idea that like we just give up kids don't want to do that you right. don't want to do that sure. No, no 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 we're just not offering them anything that's better
0: that's the real truth or their parents can't afford to do the things that everybody could afford to do 30 40 years mm. ago I want to know like when you when you think about that golden era and I, w- I would like to ask this of the people that were in the industry in that late 70s in the from from the moment on any Sunday came out until the stock market crash of the or the, or the recession of the early 80s what was it that caused so many people to buy so many motorcycles, what was it all because they were getting into dirt bikes? Was it because dirt bikes were easy to get to and they were they were not very expensive relative to the cost of living in general? What was it that was ca- creating that you call it zeitgeist of that time? Because that seemed to feed like the waves of enthusiasm over the next couple decades was all of that time in the seventies seemed to be the halcyon time. I'd like to know why. What was it, and why can't we kind of try and get back to that? What was the thing? Is it riding areas for dirt bikes to make it easy for families, or was it, you know, what what could it what could it have been?
1: I don't know. I think a big I think a big portion is cost, but I also think it's just different economies and different different priorities. We we we've moved from r- rural suburbs and into major metropolitans. Yeah. Transportation Transportations changed so dramatically. Just, just think about think about the cars. Let's let's take motorcycles out of it. Let's think about the cars that we had back then in those house selling days, and look at the cars that we have now. There was a fundamental difference there. Um, like what? Explain. What do you mean?
0: Uh, just as just far as the, efficient, the
1: physical size of them, the sure. the technology involved, the efficiency, and you know miles per gallon. I mean, I mean all of it. Like our our vehicles now are completely different. Like you know, you go out. Portland's a great example. You know, we have fleets of smart cars here. We have you don't electric need to own cars a car here. here. You, you do not need to own a car in the city. Yeah, we have bicycles going you, around. You could have
0: plausibly uh, get around the city for a year, spending money on that. What those those cars where you can car to go or whatever, yeah. and use public transportation even just a small amount, and you could get away with it without spending that much money. Well, at least not as much as you would uh, on a car and parking and dealing with all the headaches that you're. Yeah, that's a good point. There's
1: there's yeah, there's a tremendous shift in the difference of the way we're living. We're living in cities, not suburbs. Or at least we're seeing we're seeing yeah, a concentration trend, trend. event. Yeah. We're seeing a different change in transportation. Like you and I, we talk about the how transportation is changing on a regular basis on this podcast. We won't even need driver's licenses probably in twenty years. So, you know, I think that's a huge part of it. I think that's a huge part of it. And I don't think motorcycling in at least the united states has done a really good job of looking at where their place is inside of all that no we're just now we're just now starting to hear the ama getting involved with autonomous vehicles and vehicle to vehicle kind of projects and legislation and just now starting to hear them get their voice in the conversation and like i come back to like again this was something that i was talking about almost 10 years ago and i wasn't the first one having the conversation sure so f- that's like, 10 years ago and it's just well i've mean, been doing asphalt number for nine years so it's i'm rounding sure. up but i and i'm so saying though, early that, days like that
0: for them they're so far behind i got my ama renewal thing in them because i had done last time i did i was like three year renewal i'm like yeah i don't feel like getting this piece of paper every year so i'm just going to do that this time i got it and i i looked at it and i'm like i i don't think i am going to be a member any longer and i but i was thinking like how can i phrase this to them and say hey so you know, you've got somebody that's been a member for uh, how long seventeen years or something, and now I do not feel that you represent me because you don't do X, Y, and Z, whether it be lane splitting or helmet laws or whatever. So now I don't see any reason to be an AMA member.
1: Two two sides to that, I would I would generally agree with you. Two sides to that though. The other side being if you're not an AMA member, then you're no you give up your place to have a voice yep. to change the institution.
0: So, but that's my question is like, that's why I was dealt with the crux of it is like, well, what am I going to do? I never, never came up. I was actually going to ask you about it. Like, what would you do if you were me? So here I am. What would you do? Are you an AMA member? Nope, I am not. And you, but you've been doing it and you you have influenced me on this because you're like, hey. These people don't do good by us. Why should no. I be a, a, a member? So now I'm I'm thinking that through. I was a member because I had to be in order to join uh, to race. I think I, in order to race Arma, I decided to become a member. Otherwise, I don't like to normally join shit like that. But I did, and then I just kept it up because why not, right? So then you just have to reluctantly pay to your whatever take the box and yep, pay the thing, whatever, which is no big deal. But you know, from a uh, and from, from a financial standpoint, it's not like I feel like they're taking my money. It's just like, ugh, wh- where is this money going? Well,
1: I mean, so that's, that's the thing. And I think I, for me, I draw really clear parallels between, um, what has happened in our national political environment versus like motorcycling's little, little microcosm. And I would, I think you can make a great parallel between the Tea Party is to the Republican Party, what a bait is to the AMA. Yeah. And what we've seen is this this vocal and strong minority group. Wagging the dog. And, and it's interesting that they both have strong liber- libertarian philosophies. Yep. Influencing the larger party and kind of almost in a way hijacking it into having and an, an taking on some of their similar views. Like I would say like the AMA, what has the AMA done of note in the past 20 or 30 years? They've done a really good job of getting rid of our helmet laws. Yeah. You know, they've done a really good job of lobbying on behalf of this minority group of motorcyclists that don't want to have helmet laws. Yep. And they have this like almost double speak. They're talking out both sides of their mouth. Oh, we don't think there should be mandatory helmet laws, but we think all motorcyclists should wear helmets. Huh? Okay. <laughs> good luck with that cognitive dissonance that you're creating there because you're you're trying to appease this strong group that is voting inside of your membership that is saying, hey, this is the thing we want, and because the AMA is so reactionary instead of – I don't think that the AMA is a very good leader. I don't think it is leading motorcyclists down a smart path. I think it is just being hijacked by the voices that it hears and is therefore reactionary. Yeah. So when all the voices that show up say, hey, we don't want helmet laws, hey, we don't want this, hey, we don't want that, or hey, these are our priorities, not these other things – they're sitting there going like, hey, our membership has spoken. And at the end of the day, you know, our, our, me- our dues paying people are our shareholders, our stakeholders. So that's who we're going to follow. And I think they've, they've done that to their detriment. At the end of the day, I don't think we're doing anything good for the motorcycle industry. I would like to be able to influence the AMA to go and do other things. I'm lucky that I have a, a soapbox that I can stand on and yell and poke at them and say, hey, this and hey, that. And I think I think it's done some good. But, like, in terms of, like, representing me as a motorcyclist to my politicians and to my interest groups, I don't think so. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I think they've gone – they've jumped the shark so well that now I don't even – like, there's just nothing there. I'm like, well, you know, oh, great. So, you're finally getting the conversation about autonomous vehicles. And you don't want to have motorcycle-only checkpoints. And I agree with that. And, you know, maybe – Maybe we can get some lane splitting going on, guys. No, maybe. Like that for me, like my number one issue would be lane splitting. I think sure. we need to make lane splitting legal in all 50 states. If that was the AMA's goal number one, and, and then like I had to do like kind of like package with that. I was like, okay, so we're going to do the helmet thing too. Okay. Well. But as long as we're doing the lane splitting, because that's more important to me.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay, let's get on it. But but you're not necessarily you're not, a you're not one issue
0: person. You would want to see a, a general – Idea that they've got the, our best interest in mind instead of just the, the you know
1: blavating few. As a younger motorcyclist, they don't speak to me or they don't speak to any of the issues that I care about. They don't give me enough for me to take them seriously and to put. Faith into them as as a body or an organization that's going to represent my interest there's nothing there's not enough gravitas there's not enough of 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 what's the word i'm kind of looking for here there isn't a core element that we share that that's resonating yeah you know because you have to kind of like you kind of have to give me something to get on board i don't have to be 100 percent, but you have to give me enough of a, a thing for me to get to get involved and i'm not there and I'm just not there. And, you know, if we go do this this off-road race and I have to become an A-member or, or if we ever wanted to go to Bonneville and do land speed yep. records, you know, the same thing. You have to sign up to be an A-member and you're like, huh, great. Well, I so guess I'm going to get the newsletter. But, like, I don't – that's the thing. I guess I feel like I'm such a minority even though maybe my views are more in the majority of motorcyclists. I'm, I'd be such a minority within that group that my voice is – is, is meaningless. That's the issue. That's the real issue. So then the question is, is how
0: could you say you and I, as people in the industry, g- get in and try and make a difference? And I guess we'll have to look at how the structure works and say, all right, who do we talk to within the AMA and say, hey, uh, I'm, this is so bad that I'm considering not being a member, but I have to be. And I, I feel like I need to talk to somebody about why. And is there anybody that we can talk to in this organization that's woke that we can try and move along. What do I do to have a vote that's more than just, right? If I game
1: it out, and this is just spitballing, if I game it out, I would say eventually that element, that abate element is going to age out. Yeah. Because it's the same. Sure. But I would still say that is very much a part Something that's tied very closely to the the baby boomer generation. Yeah, I agree. So I see it the same thing. Just as baby boomers are going to age out of motorcycling, I see like that that a bait rider aging out of the motorcycle industry, which I think means that we might age out the AMA rider out of the industry. Yeah, and maybe that opens up a opportunity, or maybe the AMA realizes just like the motorcycle industry as a whole is starting to realize, like, hey, if we want to stick around, if we want to have like dues paying members. We need to start getting younger people involved. We need to start, you know, getting twenty somethings and thirty somethings and forty some. I mean, truthfully, they probably are. They'd probably be stoked for you to sign up, Quinn. They'd probably love to see a forty something sign up because, man, <laughs> that's you're skewing the demographic. The demographic younger for Down, them finally, yeah, for sure. But you know, and I think hopefully that realization will start them being like, hey, so what are the issues that younger people are interested in? Is it? It's not helmet loss? What? What is it? Is it? Is it having more motor like? Portland's a great example. We don't have any motorcycle parking in Portland. We treat motorcycles as cars. So I got to not only do I have to pay a boat ton for parking in downtown. Yeah, it's true. I'm going to take up an entire car space while I do it. Yep. And that just seems dumb. So maybe, maybe they'll start realizing like, Hey, you know, a lot of these young kids, these millennial types that don't like going outside, they sure do live in a lot of big cities and they sure do like want to park their motorcycles on the street somewhere in that city. Oh, maybe we should get on board with that. Sure. Huh. Or maybe it's lane splitting or maybe yeah. it's, it's, Privacy. I just saw a thing today. The AMA was getting on board with a Fourth Amendment issue, and they wrote an amicus brief. And you're like, "Oh, congratulations! You wrote an amicus brief." Truthfully, you should be doing about a hundred of those a day, but that's the whole thing. Congratulations, you wrote one. But you know, at least you're getting involved with these issues of privacy. And
0: what is an amicus brief? An
1: amicus brief is when you are not a party to a lawsuit, but you write the court anyways and and say. Hey, this is a legal argument, or this is a public policy argument, or these are facts and situations relevant to this case, as a way of persuading the court to a decision. Huh? So an amicus brief literally means like a friend of you're a friend of the court. You're writing a, a friendly note to huh. the judge. Means like, hey, Your Honor, we think this for your consideration. We think that you know this consideration and this is the big picture and this is what's going on in our industry and blah 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 blah. blah
0: but it would take being something with. I think use the used word gravitas and uh, an entity with that. It wouldn't be just Joe Schmo. I'm doing an Amicus brief. Oh, oh
1: no, Joe Schmo can totally do an Amicus but brief, but it,
0: it wouldn't mean much. The judge, the judge would be like, uh, Nah. It
1: depends. It, it helps when it's written by it's by an organization like the MA. Sure. It helps when it's written by say a person of note or a leader of thought. Got it. Okay, but you know, it, it's a whole thing. You usually see it at higher court levels, but it, it can happen at lower court levels. But you know, it's it's the same. It's the same argument. It's just one of those things where it's like, well, guys. If you want this to continue to be a thing, if you want to continue being an organization, uh, maybe start realizing that your your core demographic is aging out and, and maybe start speaking to the things that younger people care about. Maybe start understanding like, hey, maybe you should start doing recruiting events that aren't at like the hog ride.
0: Yeah. Open it up to a different Level well, uh, never never,
1: so, never seen an AMA booth at a track day. I'll tell you that. No, I think that's. No, I was thinking
0: about that relative to like which racetracks I would have ever seen AMA. Maybe at Laguna Seca,
1: 15, 20 years ago. But I'm I, trying to think. Even even at Moto America, so. is there an AMA? There's got to be one. I, don't, I, I would I would I would hate to say there isn't because I'm, I'm and, so certain I'm there saying. would be. But I can't, I can't remember, remember
0: it. it either. Like I don't remember seeing. I'm not saying it wasn't there, but that's that's a good question. Like where do they? Where do they get their new members from? And I don't know. I'm not sure.
1: Uh, Quentin, before before we sign off, we need to remind everyone that we will be doing a live show in San Francisco. We hope all of you will be there. But if not all of you, at least those of you who are located in the San Francisco Bay Area region, it'll be at the San Francisco Dainese store, which is on South Van Ness, December 13th. It's a Wednesday night, 630 to about eight o'clock. It'll be uh, Quentin and myself musing on. I had to give like topics on what we're going to talk about. I think we're going to talk about like lane splitting and emerging technologies in the industry, and kind of keep it kind of California tech-y, Bay tech-y. Area, yeah. Okay. Kind of play to play to the audience, you know. Okay. Um, but I think it should be good, and then we'll do like some Q and A. So hopefully, we'll have some good listener questions. And mostly, just want to hang out and talk bikes with all y'all. So sure. come on down. Uh. Bring some Mountain Dew. Bring your kickstands. Bring your bring, bikes attached to your kickstands. What
0: you're going to bring is uh, Victor Bravo. You need to bring me a VB. That is the Australian beer that I couldn't think of earlier. And I don't think anybody really knows it. And I don't know if there's any way to get it in the U.S. But if there is, it's got to be in San Francisco. So if somebody brings a six-pack of VB, I'd be stoked. Because spe- I've never had it and I've always got to- Get yeah, a special prize from Quentin. Yeah, special prize. Which you probably don't want. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> that don't bring that also make sure to uh uh give us an idea of what the strangest thing you've had to take on your motorcycle that i i'm definitely curious about what kind of weird things that people have carried uh on motorcycles over
1: i think they can send that email to to enthusiasts at gmail.com sounds good i'll make that email address you Hopefully. better I hope it's not taken we're
0: <laughs> <I'm> really screwed <laughs> either that or go to the facebook page and Get us there. That's that seems to work
1: pretty well. Yeah. All, All right, right, man. Good talk. Kickstands up. See you out there. See you in San Francisco. Later. All and, right. And you know where he's from? Sydney. Sydney. He's from Sydney. <laughs> All
0: right. So, so Jensen texts this to me, <laughs> right? And I'm and I'm like, I'm not prepared to respond. <laughs> Uh, don't
1: even get me sharted.
0: <laughs> That's what he said. I was like, I'm so proud of Jensen. So we went from prepared, poo-paired, poo-paired,
1: to, to uh, don't get me sharted, or no, careful what you shart. Careful what you shart. <laughs> but I just like that, that there's someone else out there that that like can feel my pain. Heineken or whatever. I don't know what they drink down no, there. No, there's a very specific
0: beer that's They're supposed sure to be really there good there. But I, I can't remember the name of it. Kangaroo Tit or
1: something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a great micro brew down there? Just, ah, oh, it's Kangaroo Tit. <laughs> oh, God. It's in the pouch. <laughs> You're having it down in Sydney. <laughs> oh, good times. Poor, our poor Australian listeners. I have to put up with my bad Australian accent. <laughs> Not as good as my Sean Connery accent, though. <laughs> We should uh,
0: get listeners to um, anybody that can give us a good story about carrying something bizarre in their motorcycle. I'd like to hear it. Like, what is the what is the weirdest
1: thing that you've had to carry on your bike? Guarantee we're going to get a sheep story. Uh, <laughs> because we, in addition to our Australian listeners, we have New it's Zealand listeners. New Zealanders, Zealanders and, listeners, and Welsh. You know they got some sheep down there. And Welsh. But well, all, both of them, they're all about their sheep. Why would the sheep be out of the galoshes if they're Welsh? <laughs> <laughs> stop it that's a that's a and they're wellies. that's a british joke
0: they're wellies there <laughs> you shouldn't call them galoshes they're called wellies over there right chupachuk wallacabra
1: yeah